My guest this episode is Paul Andres, an occupational therapist in Germany who began his career as a pediatric OT working with kids before the term AAC had ever made its way to Germany. As the field expanded, Paul worked at Prentke Romy Deutschland, first as a consultant and then as a MinSpeak application program developer. Later, he took on extra work with Semantic Impact Assistance to take on a much broader role supporting the development and use of other non-English vocabulary sets. Paul was also instrumental in creating the first prototype of the Realized Language Online AAC Data Analysis System for both the English and German-speaking markets. More recently, Paul has been working with individual clients, tracking language development and device use using Realized Language, providing remote yet close support over several years. So welcome, 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 Paul. How are you doing? Thank you, Russell. Hello. Pleased to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. So let's start with you telling us uh, a little bit more about yourself and your AAC journey so far. Well, my AAC journey, since it's been going on now for 40 years, might take a bit of time. But uh, <laughs> as you said in the introduction, my first contact with AAC was was at the beginning of the 80s. I think this was before the term AAC was in use anywhere, because I think the, the term AAC was invented in about 82. Before that, I was working with kids with very limited speech or no speech at all and trying to find out what we could do with them. And eventually I came across a, a course that they were running at the Wolfson Center in London. And this was the beginning of 84 now. And it was called something like the new field augmentative alternative communication. And I thought, well, that sounds all right. I'll go and listen to that. I'll go and, I'll go and take part in that. Uh -huh. And the rest is history. Although, although, although it's not quite the rest is history, because at that very, at that very course, do you remember Colin Clayton? Yes, I do remember Colin. Yeah. Okay. Colin Clayton worked at the, at the Wilson Center and he showed me the latest device available in the field of AAC. Mm. It was a touch talker. And he said, this is new. And this is really interesting because you see the pictures here. If you want to say, I want some chips, then you press the apple because it's food. And then you press the, the vault. The point of that was that the vault looked like a chip and then something or other. And then the device can say, I want some chips. If you want to say, please comb my hair, then you touch the clothing and the chip because when you comb your hair, you get a little electrical thing. I was like, do you know the scene in The Wind and the Willows when Toadie sees in a motor car for the very first time? Oh, yeah. He sits in the road going, beep, 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 beep. Well, <laughs> that happened to me. I thought, this is what I want to do. I found my life's work. <laughs> <laughs> so back to Germany. I was living in Germany already. Carried on working in pediatric OT for a bit. Then I, um, PRD, Prankeromic Deutschland was founded at the beginning of the 90s. Started working as a consultant. At that point, there were no maps in, there were no vocabularies anywhere. People didn't really believe that it was a good idea to have a pre-sorted vocabulary in a device. The, the, yeah. the arguments that we were having were that it's a, an imposition on, a, on an AAC user to have a pre-sorted vocabulary. Ah, we produced our first word-based uh, German vocabulary, and people started using it. Even small kids started using it within a few months especially Bliss users in those days who were mm. kind of transferring over from low-tech. Carried on with PID for many years as a consultant, making different new vocabulary sets until beginning of the noughties. I then worked for Prankeromic directly and at the same time also working for Semantic Compaction, working for Bruce Baker 
going around various countries in Europe and supporting the people here who were who were trying to set up AAC and trying to set up MinSpeak within their countries. And I'm now retired. In, in relation to the languages, what languages did you work on that you can remember doing? Oh, okay. Um, well, obviously German. The first several years worked on German. In those days, working for Semantic Impaction, there was uh, Jeff Micah, who was the linguist at Semantic Impaction, Bruce Baker's company, looking at producing various different international vocabularies. So I was working with German. Jeff was, was looking at Dutch, Swedish, various other things. And then when I started working directly for Bruce Baker, we then looked at Hispanic Spanish. Okay. There was already a French map, but I gave them some support. We did a Danish map. We did a Norwegian map. We looked at, we, we didn't get very far, but we looked at Chinese and we looked at Japanese. And that was that working for, for, for semantic compaction. Since I retired, I was, I've been helping someone looking at doing a Zulu map, which is kind of interesting. Thinking about all those different languages, what are the sort of issues do you think that people underestimate, I guess, when they say, oh, can we have a vocabulary in X language or can we have a bilingual language system? Well, that's kind of three questions. So my answer may run on a bit. Okay. <laughs> the first is the, the first and most obvious thing is that one language is not simply a translation of the words in a different language. And it's probably the example that a lot of your listeners will know is from Spanish, that the verb to be in Spanish has ser and estar has two different forms. And the verb to have in English has tener and haber in Spanish as well. So especially high frequency words don't just translate backwards and forwards from one to the other. Um, mentioned briefly bilingual systems. We made the first really bilingual I think it was the first bilingual MinSpeak map, must have been, in the mid-90s on a Delta Talker. So we made a German-English map. Originally, the thought was for school students who are learning English at school. And here's a fun fact. I'm sure you like fun facts. If people are looking through the toolbox of an accent and they see the button that's called One Symbol Theme. Okay. I put my hand up because One Symbol Theme, I think, was may well have been mine. In order to make the system bilingual, we stored the entire English vocabulary in a, in a theme. So you had to press the English button and then you could say that the English words and that, that one symbol theme held, holds that English button down so you could then yeah. speak in English. Gotcha. Anyway, the decision that we came to when we were making that was that for a bilingual system, you can't make a bilingual system which is transparent in both directions. You have to make the decision what is like the base map that you're working from. So in, when we did German English, we worked from the German map to the English. Because when you're, when you're making a map, you have to make decisions about where vocabulary is going to go. And if you want to say the vocabulary should be as far as possible in the same place in the second, in the second language, then clearly you have to make a decision about where you're starting out from. We start from the, from the general language, if you like, and then any translations that we do are translations. Mm -hmm. But the main issue that we had to deal with is that a map is not simply, or a vocabulary is not simply a bunch of words. Obviously, it's a, it's a bunch of words plus a whole load of grammar. Right. And, and this is where I think a big issue in AAC comes up 
It's the fact that languages can be divided up into analytic languages and synthetic languages and agglutinative languages. Okay, yeah. And in English, it's an analytic language. And basically what that means is you take a word or you take a bunch of words and you stick them one after another and the order that you put them in provides the meaning. But when you look at, at synthetic languages like Spanish, German, French, then uh, the, the order of the words need not necessarily be so important, especially not in German. What becomes important is the, the, the word forms that you produce. So that's when you see the issue coming up in Spanish, but a Spanish verb could have maybe 25 or 30 different forms that have to be produced. And in English, basically all you do is you bang on an S or an ED or an ING and you've got all your verb forms. Right. Um, so those are the issues. You have to think about what the language, what the basis of the language is. You have to think about how to organize the vocabulary on the device. Another example, going from English to French, from English to Spanish, right? In English, you have that nice thing with the some, any, one, body, where. So you can make somewhere, someone's, you can make all those different forms. Obviously, if you, if you just translated that into Spanish, it would make no sense at all because the, the, the whole point of that, of that somebody, anybody, someone, anywhere, whatever, the whole point of that is that those things are really tight little set that belong together. But in other languages, they're not necessarily a set. So I think what you're saying there is that, you know, one of the fundamental issues is that it it seems or sounds relatively easy to handle the vocabulary of a language, but the the critical part to making a language system is to make sure you've got all those things like the grammatical forms, the morphological forms, the way in which it it, it acts. And of course, as you say, different languages have different ways of doing it and it's the mm -hmm. different ways of doing it that is more of the challenge than simply running a list of words through google translate exactly yeah i mean a good example of this is in english if you want to say i have then you say i have in spanish the entire that that phrase in spanish is a single word so the the it means that the, the whole the whole idea of what is a word changes when you move from one language to another mm -hmm. Bearing in mind you've been doing this for some time, if you were to think of something that you wish you'd have known when you started all this 40 years ago, what, what might that be? One of the things there I wish I'd known is that the kids don't look at the pictures and think about what they mean. My first few years in AAC, the, uh, I thought that I was giving the, putting pictures in front of the kids and they were sitting there and thinking about the... Uh, about what that picture might mean and then connecting that to some word in their mind and then doing something with it. As far as I can see, the, the thing I wish I'd known is that they're using those pictures to produce the words. It's the word that they're producing, which is important and not whatever's in the picture. Okay. Now, putting you on the spot, as I do with everybody on the podcast, could you reveal to people any time that you think you've had a memorable, spectacular failure? Um, uh, uh, sorry, Russell, you're breaking up. You're breaking up. <laughs> <laughs> and not just the failure itself, but what did you learn from it? What did you get from that? Okay, here's a spectacular failure and a chronic failure. I've got two. So the, the, uh, to demonstrate my deep, deep modesty. <laughs> I worked for quite closely with one little lad um, here. He used to be a little lad. He's about 30 now. But I worked quite closely with one little lad for, 
for several years and the experienced AACOT that I was, I'd read the book, the, uh, I'd written some of the chapters <laughs> and I was convinced that what this lad with a, the fairly severe athetoid CP needed was a good key guard, the correct setting on, the, on, the, on his buttons and enough practice. I was convinced that if he practiced enough, he'd get it. He worked like a mad bugger. The, mm -hmm. He was totally keen to do it. He knew the, the device backwards and forwards, but he just couldn't manage to consistently and reliably hit the keys within geological time. And I was off on holiday and uh, one of my colleagues went around to his den and met him and took the key guard off and flipped the... <laughs> flipped the um, the the selection from the what is it called select on release instead of select on press, uh -huh. and he just started talking in sentences in in normal time. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so the what you want a lesson life lesson go mm -hmm. on holiday more often. There's a good one for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I suppose the the real life lesson there is don't be totally convinced that that what you've been doing is right and all the kid needs is more of it and everything's going to work out fine. I've got a second one. This right. is the chronic failure. This is something that I did and I'm prepared to bet a moderate amount of money that you do this too or have done. Oh, surely not. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, and I, I, I really think this is a common thing, the talking over the speech output of the device when I started working with Selma, a little girl that I worked with for some years, I was looking at what she was doing. I realized she was not producing the meanings of the words. She was producing the sounds of the words. She was putting different bits of words together to make new words. So she was using the sound rather than the word themselves. What this made me realize was that what I was trying to teach her was the way things sound. And when I looked at, back at my videos of I was talking over her speech output. If she was on her way to a word that I wanted her to learn, she kind of selected the first button or she selected the second button. There's still, after you put, select the last button on a device, there's still a whole second before the word actually gets spoken. Right. So there's a long time to speak in. And I was saying, yes, that's right. That's, a, that's what, that word. And in the background, while I was doing this on the videos, the device was saying, was saying something in there, but she couldn't hear it and she couldn't read it either. The thing that I took from this was the idea that you have to, um, if you're working with a kid on a device, what you're trying to teach the child to do is not to select the correct buttons or even to select the correct bit of text in the text window. What you're trying to do is help the kid to actually hear what he or she has just said. Right. So the, the, if you like, my, my error there was a failure over several decades to wait until the device had spoken before I spoke myself. I guarantee among listeners, if you look at videos of yourself working with teaching kids to use devices, a lot of you will see how often you start to say, yes, right, you've done it, awesome, before the kid has had the chance to hear what he's actually just said. When I saw this was going on, I actually took the time to to measure it and got one of the engineers at PRC to measure on other devices as well. And between the actual selection of the button and the beginning of the speaking of the word is about a full second. So in a normal conversation, that's enough for two turns. Gotcha. Now, 
if you were to give advice to someone how they could have a career like yours, somebody just starting out who says, I want to be Paul Andres, what do they need to do to do that? We actually had this. I think you were, I think you were at the table. The, uh, we were sitting down at ATIA and someone, um, we got into this conversation. There was you, I think there was you, and certainly me, John Costello, Gail Van Tatenhove, Tracy Kovac, me dropping here. And, um, and someone said, what should I do? And the conclusion that we came to, a bunch of oldsters, the conclusion that we came to, the thing that we all had in common, the thing that gave us a common language in order to talk about AAC was a bliss course. All the oldsters who did a bliss course back in the day, I think there's still some going on in Canada, right? Everyone that had done, has done a bliss course has had the opportunity to look at language and to look at the structure of, especially of English, to look at the, uh, to look at English and the structure of English and to see the way that can be turned into into individual components that can then be reconstructed back into language, which is what using a communication system is. So uh, my suggestion would be to go to Canada, do a bliss course or Sweden. <laughs> but, and since, since no one ever asked me that question, it's a, I can say what I like really. <laughs> <laughs> now it's interesting. You, you mentioned there that bliss as a resource and bliss some training there has been a resource that, that helped you become what you are. And given that bliss and knowledge of bliss is one of these resources, are there a couple of other resources you can think of that have been particularly useful to you? That's a tricky question, Russell, because they change over time, don't they? For instance, when you and me were starting out, the most useful new resource that we had was probably Excel. You must have sat there and said, this is fantastic. You can write a word in a cell and then write it in the cell below and then you can put them into different order. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Not <laughs> underestimate the value of Excel or the spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah we, we love that. Without it, AAC would be totally different because the, the, you spend so much time in there, the sorting lists and sorting lists and sorting lists, trying to get stuff clean. Without it, you'd never, you would never have been able to use it. So... That might not be a particularly useful resource to say, oh, I must look at that one. But, um, but from your perspective, as a, but certainly as a developer of language systems, and as we noted here, you know, you, you've been involved in lots of them in different language. That ability to be able to look at words and sort words and do stuff with them is, is important. The, the first time I saw a spreadsheet program, it was really like magic. It was like a touch <laughs> dial, like a touch button phone thing <laughs> I, I can imagine that our geek listeners now are squirming and chuckling and having a really good time thinking yes spreadsheets that's where it's at yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, well resources i use google engrams a lot not so much to do um when i've been working in different countries doing the maps themselves there we tend to work from uh, from word frequency lists, which are kind of generally available on the internet nowadays. But certainly when you, I found that working with individual vocabularies of individual kids, but I visit Google engrams quite quickly just to get an idea of the relative frequency of different words. Mm -hmm. As far as books is concerned, this is, a, I mean, this is now a serious recommendation. My recommendation to, to think about the way people learn to use communication devices 
is a book by Paul Nation, uh, who's in the, the second language learning field, called Learning Vocabulary in Another Language. Now, we, we talked there just about some of the influences from resources. Mm-hmm. How about people? Who, who would you say will be three people? And I'm limiting you to three. Three people who you feel have been most influential. There's Russell Cross count as a person. No. No, I'm not allowed to count me. Because <laughs> uh, I had you down on my list as the first two. Uh, of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, obviously, Bruce Baker. This is a Minspeak podcast, right? So presumably that's not a new name. Gail Van Tatenhove, who has been a very good friend for many years. And the, the whenever I come up with some kind of half-baked idea, I call up Gail and talk it through and... And then it pops out of the oven fully baked or or thrown away, depending. Yeah, I, um, think, this is, I think this is called pole splaining. Um, <laughs> uh, a number of folks have, have, have caught on to how to pole splain things. <laughs> We've got Martin Gooden, my colleague here in Germany that, that I've worked with for many, many years. Um, do you remember Dick? I want to say Dick Turpin, but that can't be right. <laughs> no, it's not Dick Turpin. <laughs> Durban. Anyway, he was a management at PRC many years ago in the 90s. And he watched Martin and me the uh, working for a whole day. And at the end of the day, we all got in the car and he said, um, Paul, do they have Laurel and Hardy in Germany as well? <laughs> uh, so Martin and uh, but Martin is essentially my my gay work wife. And then finally, uh, I had another one. Unfortunately, well, very, very sadly, she died this year, but Maike Stars, a colleague here in Germany, who was also a brilliant pulse-planer, who was wonderful to work with because we could both come up with ideas and the ideas that we came up with just turned into stuff all the time. It was wonderful. So is there any common myth about AAC that you'd like to debunk? I've been waiting for a long time for you to ask me this question, Russell. (laughs) Yes, there is. Um, If I had to dispel a myth that's current in AAC, I think it would be the idea that I think it's a myth that even moderate successful or, or very successful device learners are producing hundreds and hundreds or even thousands of words a day. I think that the, that a typical AAC learner is maybe using five to 600 words a day. And if that's the case, then the the idea within AAC that they're learning motor patterns by doing repetition of words and repetition of words simply can't be going on because once you get beyond the first hundred odd words that are most of the words that are being used, once you get beyond that, then there simply aren't the repetitions to learn the huge majority of the other words which are in that child's vocabulary. And the place I think where we need to get to is the idea that repetition leads to motor learning, happens to some extent at the word level, maybe for 50 or 60 words. But when you get beyond that, what's going on in my mind, in your mind, I think in, I would imagine in almost every user's mind, is the idea that the that the names of the icons are in some way present within the with an inner voice and the name of the icon being selected that that is where motor 
learning can occur through repetition. So you're teaching where the things are, where the icons are, not where the words are. Okay. That's a good one, I think, for people to, to think about. Um, okay, so I want to come to my slot called the three C's, which is where I ask guests to make recommendations related to the three C's of culture, mm -hmm. courses, and clinical practice. And in culture, it's can you recommend a book, an album, and or a movie that people should do? And I think we've already heard one of your recommendations for a book in terms of courses is there a good course or a conference that you would recommend that people attend and you've already mentioned bliss and also clinical three good tips for people to improve their practice well yes i can so i shall start with culture because that's the way i am <laughs> first of all a movie or a documentary available on youtube Mr. Symbol Man, have you seen it? I have not. There's a Canadian documentary about Charles Bliss. It's been available for about a year or so on YouTube. And it's Charles Bliss explaining the way Bliss Symbolics works. And it's a, it's a moderately good introduction to It's a good introduction to Bliss. Actually, I'll tell you the reason it's a good introduction to Bliss, because this works down on the, your further question about, um, about uh, clinical practice. The beginning of it is all about is all about Charles Bliss and the, uh, the how he came up with Bliss Symbolics and how they work. The second half of the of the, of the documentary is in a classroom, presumably in Shirley McNaughton School. I, but I find that the way the the teacher in the classroom is working with those AAC users um, knocks his socks off. She's really really good. Hmm. So that's Mr. Bliss, and that's on YouTube. It's called Mr. Symbol Man. Oh. Mr. Symbolman, and that's yeah. on YouTube. Yeah. Then that's an, enough AAC stuff for the moment. I've also got Mon Oncle, my uncle from Jacques Tati, which is my go to film for if you want to save your Netflix, the if you want to save your Netflix uh, subscription, just watch Mon Oncle every day. You get a just a, a steady flow of beautiful, wonderful entertainment just kind of flowing over. You can just watch it over and over again. Mon Oncle. Yeah. There we yeah. go. Another one also on YouTube, a film that I watch once a year, Tokyo Story by Ozu. So um, Mon Oncle, it's French, but they don't speak. So that's not really an issue. The, the Tokyo Story on several lists of the greatest movie of all time. It's a Japanese film about the way we all kind of would really like to do our best for the people that we love. And it doesn't really work out, but, but they know that too. So it's, it's kind of sad. And the, well, it's very sad, actually. I find I can watch it every year. And what's ever happened to me in the course of the year turns it into a new, a new movie. And actually, with Ozu movies, Japanese film director, in filmy circles, film buff circles, it's a kind of a joke to say, what's the story about? Because it's always, there is never a story. <laughs> <laughs> it's just about people getting on with their lives. So that was my culture. All right. How about... A course or a conference that you think is unmissable or well worth the effort? Okay. I like to go to ATAA because I find it's the conference where there's the most possibility to kind of talk about stuff as well. There's plenty of discussion time at ATAA. Mm. Yeah. Another conference I like going to is um, Communication Matters in England. But it's got that 
Communication Matters has that kind of old schooly AAC conference vibe to it. It feels like it feels like an AAC conference in the 1990s, the, in a good way. Like a you know the people dressing up for the for the evening entertainment and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and I've got another one, another YouTube recommendation. There's a lecture by Paul Nation to the the translators of the U.S. State Department. Okay, here, talking about his four strand model. I would guess we can put it into the show notes, but I would guess if you Google Paul Nation State Department lecture, then you probably find it. Okay, that's okay. That's a strong recommendation. The that's a really good uh, introduction to to Paul Nation's general view of stuff. And finally, your three tips for good clinical practice. Well, I kind of mentioned one of these before, but I can make it a bit snappier for you. We all know Gail Van Tatenhove's Wait, Watch, and Pray. I would extend that, and I would say. Wait, watch, pray, and wait again. Because <laughs> <laughs> wait, watch, and pray really only takes you down to where the kid selected what he was going to do. And the wait again means wait until the kid has actually heard what he or she has just said. Gotcha. Yep. The next one kind of goes back a bit to the myths and the debunking of the myths, kind of. Because one of the things that I've noticed on the symbols for AAC where you see a kid using a device with an adult is how often the adult is behind the kid's shoulder, looking over the shoulder at the display, which then leads to them then saying when they see the word pop up, saying, yes, wonderful, you did that very well, before the kid has had the chance to hear it. My suggestion is to think about ways to teach not behind the kid's back, but to give help in front of the kid, across the room. Because first of all, one way to do that is, for instance, rather than simply saying, we just point at the symbols and then the kids will learn it, teach the kid the names of the symbols on the device, play games where you come up with the names, because then you can be on the other side of the room and give assistance. And if you're on the other side of the room, you can only respond to what the kid has done when he's actually done it not before it's finished. That's one point. The second point is that if you can teach the skills which are necessary to to learn and to teach across a room, then you're going to increase the amount of teaching time that you can provide to a kid by whatever that word is. I was going to say tangentially, but that can't be right, can it? No. Because it means, um, and I used to see this with Selma, in the realized data, I could see that Selma's, uh, that Selma's mother was in some way preparing a meal and helping Selma to say stuff on the other side of the room because she could simply tell her, Selma got stuck, she could just tell her an icon sequence to produce a word to get on. So suddenly, rather than showing it on the device, you're talking about language, which can't be harmful. You're talking about language and teaching from across the room. It's just increasing the amount of time that you're teaching it means that you're directing your intervention to the thing that you're actually trying to teach, which is the kid talking and not selecting the symbols in order to talk. Gotcha. And the third one, don't assume it was an error. Think about the way the word sounded when the kid said it. And I'll give you an example of this. Uh, this is from Lindsay, sorry, Lindsay Cargill in Columbus. One of her kids was looking out the window 
and said, with a device in front of her, square. Okay. And then said, L. And her mum was, again, standing behind her. So she was looking over her shoulder, looking at these geometric shapes and thinking, what's that, what's that all about? And was trying to, started trying to kind of model in to try and turn this into something geometric or whatever. And mum said she was halfway up the stairs before she realized that this kid had said squirrel, said square L. And the thing which has come out of my work in the last couple of years is that I've come to realize that these are not examples of, of some kind of high-flying, the uh, super metalinguistic thing that kids are doing when they say square L. Everyone has an ex any experienced AAC clinician listening to this will have an example of a kid that did something like that. And, and my, my contention is that is that this is not a metalinguistic skill where someone is thinking, how can I rephrase that? The, but simply of the fact that the child has learned to produce the sounds that the device makes and is using the sounds that the device makes to make a word. It's wonderful, but there's not, I don't think there's any particularly special in the, in the sense that the kid is kind of thinking about how to do this. This is something which comes perfectly naturally to anybody talking using a device. So my suggestion is, listen to what it sounded like if you didn't understand it because it the kid may be saying something which sounds similar good yeah so in a sentence or two what do you want folks to take away from what you've said today that's a very good question um probably as far as making vocabularies in different languages concerned and there are people around the world constantly trying to do this the uh, who probably listen to english podcasts as well i know people in australia making non-english maps as well the thing to remember when you're making a vocabulary for a device is that languages work in different ways and the place you have to start is not english and then fiddle it from there the place you generally have to start is the words of the language the way the language is constructed the grammar of the language and then you have to look to how to put that together. For anyone making a bilingual system, it's probably important to think you're working from one language into another. And it's whenever you come to a point where you have to make a decision, always just think, okay, what language are we working from and to, and don't try and make it transparent in both directions. As far as clinical stuff is concerned, the things I said at the end there, which would be, don't assume that there's an error going on, listen to the way it sounded. Don't assume that, that repetition is going to get you the, all the way to the end. It's only going to get you to the end of the first hundred words. And finally, my recommendation, which I hope that people take away from this, is that they come constantly back to listen to your podcast, Russell. <laughs> we'll see how that works. I don't know. Constantly, maybe repeatedly would be more useful than constantly. <laughs> so how do people contact you with comments or questions? They can contact me on paul.andres at me.com. Paul.andres at me.com. Okay. Well, paulandres at me.com. Thanks very much for being here. And thanks for sharing all this really good stuff. And hopefully we can get you back at some point to talk a little more about the work that you're doing. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to anyone that's got to the end here. Goodbye. <laughs>
and it's a wrap.